for leading us in worship this morning. If any of you are uh, young adults, high school, college, out of college, I really encourage you to take advantage of Stepping Stones first and third Tuesday nights of that worship and community there as well. You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes I end up feeling sorry for my kids. Not that I've been a bad dad. I think I've done a, done a decent job being dad. But like any kid, they're forced to endure the quirks of their parents, right? They don't have any choice, but they have to endure them. And I was thinking about that the other day. Um, with a trip I took Brant on, it must be three, four summers ago, I took him out to Colorado, and we did some backpacking up in the mountains of Colorado. And there was nothing quirky about that. The backpacking was awesome and fun and challenging and, and was terrific. It was a drive home that I forced Brant to endure a few things that, that, I don't know, I feel badly about, right? I have this quest of, of setting foot in all 48 uh, contiguous United States, and so I decided to drive home from Colorado via Highway 70 instead of 80. It only adds about two and a half, three hours onto your trip, and you can hit Kansas then. So poor kid had to sit in the car for another two and a half hours and had to endure Kansas. Let me tell you, there's nothing on Highway 70. Don't choose it, okay? But since I'm going through Kansas anyways, there's all sorts of places that I want to stop that, of course, he's not that interested in. Because we're in Kansas, I uh, had to stop in Topeka, which is the capital. And, and even though it was evening by the time we got there and the capital was closed, that doesn't mean you can't go wander around for about an hour and a half and read all the plaques on the building and all the plaques on the statues and all that stuff. Just what any high schooler would want to do. And then uh, in the morning, you can't leave too soon because in Topeka also is the Brown versus Board of Education National Historic Site. So what high schooler wouldn't want to go tour a school in the middle of summer, right? And so we had to go there and spent a couple hours touring that place, which made my heart sing, his heart not so much. Um, and then we ended up driving through Abilene, Kansas. And and I took about a 20-minute detour to Abilene, Kansas, because there's something important there. Does anybody know what's in Abilene, Kansas that would make you want to stop? You were at first service. You don't count. All right. One person in first service knew why in the world you'd ever stop in Abilene, Kansas. This tiny little town in the middle of nowhere is the hometown of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Okay, he lived there from 1892 to, to 1911, and from there he moved on, went to West Point, and, and he became the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Western Europe during World War II. He became the commander of NATO forces in all of Europe. He served two terms as the 34th president of the United States. During that time, he managed the Cold War with Russia. He ended the war in Korea. He strengthened Social Security. He did a massive new infrastructure stuff here in our country. And 15 minutes off the highway, off of Highway 70, you will find the Dwight D. Eisenhower Presidential Library, Museum, and Boyhood Home. It's about as exciting as it sounds. Okay, we didn't go in, but there were plenty of plaques to read, and he, Brant, bit his tongue and let me endure my little moment of Dwight D. Eisenhower fame, right? Um, if you decide to put that on your list of places to go, let me warn you that Abilene, Kansas, there is like nothing there. And right now it's population 4,000, I think it is. Um, when Eisenhower grew up there, it would truly be considered nowhere, right? And so from nowhere comes Eisenhower to become the 34th president of the United States. Pretty impressive feat from those humble beginnings, Right? 
But he wasn't actually born there. You just got to clarify that. He was born in Denison, Texas, which is a sprawling metropolis of 11,000 people. So he went from small. When, one, when he was one year old, they moved him to even smaller Abilene, Kansas. Now, I tell you that because we're looking together at Matthew chapters 1 and 2 this morning. And, and these chapters tell us about the very humble beginnings of Jesus' life. And really, Eisenhower's beginnings mirror Jesus' beginnings in so many ways, right? Because Jesus, too, was born in a nondescript city and then moved when he was just a baby to a totally nowhere town, right? During, during Advent, every year, we spend five Sundays celebrating Christmas, the birth story of Jesus, and, and we look at all the particular details. We dig deep into all these details of the birth story, and sometimes we miss, we miss the overarching theme and story, the theme of the story that Matthew is trying to tell us. In Jesus' birth story, Matthew wants us to know that place matters. And we can learn a lot about who Jesus is. We can learn about, a lot about why Jesus came through the places in Jesus' story, not just in his birth story, but we're going to find it as we read through the whole book of Matthew together this Lent season. Place matters. And in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, he gives us two key places that communicate a lot. The first place he locates us is Bethlehem in Judah. If you know the book of Matthew, you know he doesn't give us a very detailed account of Jesus' birth. If you want the, the details, if you want all the, the cool story that we celebrate at Christmas time, you've got to read the book of Luke. Luke gives us the full, the full birth account. Matthew tightens it way down. Okay, and, and in the second half of chapter 1, you want to open your Bibles, by the way, to Matthew 1 and 2. We're going to look at a couple different sections there. In chapter 1, he starts by giving this, this whole genealogy. And in the second half of chapter 1, we're introduced to Joseph and Mary. And Joseph accepts the fact that, that he's going to marry his, his, the person he's engaged to, Mary, that she's with child, and that God tells him, go ahead and marry her. Even though it's not your child, it's, it's God's child. But in that whole section there at the end of chapter 1, Matthew doesn't give us any place. We don't know where Joseph is. We don't know where Mary is. We don't know their location. But the beginning of chapter 2, he specifically tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Okay? There it is. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. For most of us, fine. It's, it's, it's the name of a city. It's a place, an abstract place somewhere far away. We can different, we just use Bethlehem to differentiate from every other city that's out there. But that's not necessarily the case. You know, we, we assume everything we know about Bethlehem from the covers of our Christmas cards, don't we? That's just a quaint little village that is kind of, kind of cute, always clean, and always seems to be about dusk, so you can see the star up above it. That's Bethlehem to us. It's about the extent of our knowledge. But to the Jewish people who are reading Matthew's account for maybe the first time, the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem would have carried a whole bunch more meaning would have carried a whole lot of weight 
they would have known immediately that there's a reason why Matthew is telling us that he was born in Bethlehem. See, today Bethlehem, if you were to go there, it's a major city in Israel on the Palestinian side of the wall that divides that country. You know, we're, we're on this map up here. Uh, we're located down here towards the south, right? Here's Jerusalem here, and Bethlehem's right nearby there. We're up in the mountains here. Um, this whole area is a series of peaks and valleys with very few plateaus. And Bethlehem is the city that's just six miles away from Jerusalem. It's just kind of a hop, skip, and a jump away. But Bethlehem we need to realize it wasn't even really considered a city back then. It was more like a, a little village. A village without any economic or political significance, really. But it was a village with a history. A history that would have immediately flooded the minds of all of Matthew's readers. Because Bethlehem, this little village was the birthplace of King David, the, the birthplace of the royal line of David. This is where the kings come from. This is where King David, the George Washington of their country, was born and raised. And this is the place where their political savior was going to come from where David's royal heir was going to come from. Remember, they're under foreign rule. The Romans have come. And for, for, for a long time, the rightful king of Israel, the royal line, has been gone. They're, they're nowhere to be found. The Romans have come in. They set up their own king, King Herod, who wasn't part of the royal throne, who the people of Israel despised and hated. And these first century Jews were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for someone who was going to come in and drive away these Romans and give them their freedom again. So when they hear Matthew begin by telling us, hey, by the way, this Jesus I'm going to tell you about, he's from Bethlehem. Oh, they know the rest of the story in their minds. This is going to be the guy. This is going to be the guy who's going to set us free from the Romans. This is the guy who's got royal blood in his veins. This is going to be good. So Bethlehem will bring all that, that fact that Jesus has the rightful authority to be king. would bring that all flooding to their mind at the very beginning of the story of Jesus. So Bethlehem is the city of David. But... Bethlehem also is not Jerusalem. Okay, that sounds pretty, pretty obvious. Bethlehem's not Jerusalem, but it's significant. This little village of Bethlehem sits in the shadows of the big city of Jerusalem. They're right next door neighbors to each other. And Jerusalem is the seat of political and religious power and authority. It's the center of the country. You see, hundreds of years earlier, when King David, remember back in the Old Testament here, when King David unified the nations, the North and South Kingdoms, he didn't choose Bethlehem to be his capital city, which would be the logical choice. It's his hometown. He moved over six miles. 
And he said, Jerusalem is a better place to have the capital. And he made Jerusalem the capital city. And so when you read in Scripture about the city of David, okay, a couple times Luke refers to Bethlehem as the city of David. But overwhelmingly, you're talking about Jerusalem. That's the city of David. In fact, if you go there today, there's a whole archaeological dig going on right in the heart of the walled city called the city of David. It's the old ancient city that David called the capital. It's in Jerusalem. And so Bethlehem, this little village, sits right next to Jerusalem, but it's socially worlds away. Right? Anyone who's anyone in this country is going to call Jerusalem home, not Bethlehem. Because Jerusalem is where the royal palace is. Jerusalem is where the government sits. Jerusalem is where the temple is. Jerusalem is where your, your education centers are. Jerusalem is where all the authority, where all the power lies. That's why in Matthew chapter 2, the Magi from the east come, right? Because they've heard that a king has been born. Listen to verses 1 and 2. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the place where kings are born. Jerusalem is the place of power and authority. Kings shouldn't be born in Bethlehem. Kings should come from Jerusalem, just like presidents should come from, from New York or Washington or Chicago, but not Abilene, Kansas. This choice of Bethlehem that God made, this choice of Bethlehem and not Jerusalem, it, it, it might be might have been a minor blip in this story except for the next place that Matthew brings us in his Christmas story so Jesus is born in Bethlehem this small mostly insignificant village humbly sitting in the shadow of glorious Jerusalem but but you probably are familiar somewhat familiar with the story he doesn't stay there okay, remember Herod sends the Magi come, tell him a king has been born. Herod sends his thugs out of Jerusalem over to Bethlehem, a six-mile journey, and he orders every boy under the age of two to be killed. And he does that because he wants to get rid of this king, right? This, this future threat to his throne. Only Joseph has been warned, and so he, he scoops up Mary and his little baby, and they have flown, fled down to Egypt. They're refugees finding safety in a foreign land. And at the end of chapter 2, Joseph here gets word from God, from an angel again, that it's safe to return home again. Go back to Israel. But he doesn't take his little family back to Bethlehem. Listen to what, he, what happens. Verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. 
and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So Matthew makes it a point to tell us that Jesus called Nazareth in Galilee his home. He wouldn't have grown up calling Bethlehem his home. Nazareth was his home. That's where he grew up. Again, most of us here probably shrug our shoulders and say, okay, so what? A lot of us are born in one place, we grow up in another place. What's the big deal about Nazareth, about Galilee, about Jesus being from there? Well, if Bethlehem was the equivalent to Eisenhower's Denison, Texas, where he was born, then Nazareth was his Abilene, Kansas. Because Nazareth was truly nowhere. Nazareth was truly a nothing town. If Jerusalem was the place to be, if you were going to have any authority, influence, or power, if you were going to get any kind of education, then Nazareth was about as far away from Jerusalem as you could possibly get. First of all, it was far away geographically. Remember I told you on this map here, you got, you got Jerusalem right down here in the south in the middle of this mountain range. To get to Nazareth, you've got to go all the way up north through this whole mountain range, way up here to Nazareth, tucked way up high in Galilee. It's, and that's a long journey on foot through the mountains. That's not an easy journey. It's a long ways away, way up there in northern Israel. It would have been much different. These cities don't interact together. And anyways, Nazareth could hardly be called a city anyways. It was a tiny, tiny little village. They think it had a population of about 200. So all of us gathered here this morning, we outnumber Nazareth, the city that Jesus grew up in. He grew up in a community smaller than this. It wasn't even big enough to have a McDonald's. There's no record of McDonald's being in Nazareth. McDonald's won't want to build there anyways because Nazareth is a city tucked up way up in, in the hills. There's no major highway going through. There's no traffic. There's no reason, if you were a first century person going by the closest highway, there's no reason you'd say, you know, let's take a detour and go to Nazareth. <laughs> Zero appeal to get there. It's an isolated farming village way up high in a hill. In this city, Nazareth, has no history to fall back on either. Right, read your Old Testament stories. You'll read stories about Jerusalem. You'll read about Bethlehem, all in the Old Testament. You'll never find Nazareth mentioned. It's not there. No significance at all. And these people in this whole region of Galilee up here, right, you have your southern area, Judah down here with Jerusalem. You have this whole region of Galilee up here. They are all kind of kind of seen by the powerful people down south as the deplorables of their nation. Okay? Nobody likes people from Galilee. They, you see, the people from Galilee up north, they're a mixture of foreigners and immigrants. So they aren't pure socially or spiritually like the people down in, in Jerusalem and Judah are. There were pagan cities scattered all throughout that region. And the Jews there they didn't follow nearly as strictly all the ceremonial laws that the people of Jerusalem did. They didn't, they didn't come and celebrate all the festivals down in the temple that they were supposed to. They were kind of lax on, on making those trips. 
And besides, they talked funny. You know, like when you, when you head to a different area of the United States and they talk differently than we do. You know, we talk right here in Michigan. Everybody else talks wrong, right? Yeah, I see some heads shaking. No, you're right. We don't say roof right. We say it. People in Galilee, they talk funny too. And so you, you can't hide that you're from Galilee. So these people up north, these people up in Galilee, your, your, your fine Jewish people of Jerusalem, would look at them as kind of your, your country backwards cousins. Looked, would look down on them socially, spiritually, with contempt. That's Jesus. That's who he is. Because that's where he's from. We can see that contempt in, in John chapter 1. John, John kind of skips the birth story of Jesus. So already in chapter 1, we... We have Jesus gathering his disciples together. And, and he finds Philip, and Philip signs on to be a disciple following Jesus. And maybe you remember the story. Philip runs and finds his friend Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah. And then his next line is, it is Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, remember? Jesus of Nazareth, way up there in the, of Nazareth. And remember Nathaniel's immediate reaction? He looks at Philip and says, Ha! Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And it's funny because Philip doesn't launch into an argument saying, Yeah, here's all the good things that Nazareth does. He knows that, <laughs> that Nathaniel's right. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So he simply says, I don't know. Come check out for yourself. You got to come and meet this guy. He doesn't even try and defend Nazareth because it's a backwards hick town. In fact, we know that at one point Nazareth was kind of an insult. To say that you're from Nazareth, that's something you'd throw out to your enemy before you throw the gloves off and start a fight. Right? This is where Jesus calls home. This is the culture, the community, the city that shaped who he was, how he talked. He moves from an unimportant little town to an even more unimportant, backwards, uneducated farming town. He moves from bad to worse. It's exactly the kind of move that any prominent family with hopes for, for your son to make it in the world would not make. And that is exactly the point that Matthew doesn't want us to miss. That's exactly the message that God is sending about his son at the very start of his life, at the very beginning of this story that we're going to be reading. Yes, Jesus is a king with royal blood running through his veins. But Bethlehem, you know, Bethlehem confirms that truth that he's that king. But from the very start, the message is clear that he's going to be a very different kind of king. He's not going to be the J Jerusalem kind of king. He doesn't choose Jerusalem. He doesn't choose power. He doesn't choose authority. He doesn't choose a royal throne made out of gold and marble. God does not send his son to the well-paved wide roads of Jerusalem. He sends his son to the foot-worn, hoof-beaten path of Nazareth. 
right from the very start. The story of Jesus Christ is a story of humility. That's what Bethlehem would, would, would tell us. That's what Nazareth would have shouted through the geography of Matthew's story. Matthew is shouting in chapters 1 and 2, here's Jesus, a nobody from nowhere. Here's Jesus, someone with no earthly potential and position. Here's Jesus, someone who's far away from the halls of power and prestige, as far away as you can get. Here's Jesus, who's about to give all of us a lesson in humility. Because in Jesus, we see our humble God. And think about that for a moment. What a, what a crazy oxymoron that is. Our humble God. How can the God of the universe, who has all power, who has all glory, all wisdom, how can he be humble? It doesn't make any sense. Until you see Jesus, until you read his story, Jesus, who John Ortberg writes, wore the glory of humility. I love that line. He wore the glory of humility. It is through the humility of Nazareth and Galilee that Jesus the Messiah will claim victory for his people, not through the honor that Jerusalem and Judah hold. It is through service and sacrifice that Jesus the Messiah will claim glory, not through power and prestige. It's through meekness that Jesus the Messiah will change this world, will change our lives forever, not through pride, Matthew's message to us right from the start is that this is a story about the glory of humility. And Matthew's the one who makes sure that we hear the voice of Jesus telling us, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. And Matthew makes sure we hear the voice of Jesus calling us to follow in his humble footsteps. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And it's those who humble themselves who will be exalted. Our God uses humility. He doesn't care about our proximity to worldly power and authority. He doesn't care about that kind of glory. He measures your glory, my glory, our glory in humility. He chooses the backwardsness of Galilee over the high society of Judah. He chooses the simplicity of a little village of Nazareth over the, over the power and prestige of Jerusalem. He chooses a farmhouse over a palace. And he ends up choosing a wooden cross over a golden throne. He chooses the humility of a cross over the glory of a throne. 
That is the story of humility that Matthew is going to tell us. And that is the humility that our God calls us to. To you and me. Matt, take out your Bibles if you put them away. Turn to one more passage with me. Philippians chapter 2. Page 951. If you're using the Bible in front of you. Philippians 2. It's a passage that you should turn to often. Read often. Because in the first 11 verses of Philippians 2, Paul summarizes all 28 chapters of Matthew. He summarizes the story of Jesus' life. He tells us about Jesus' humility and calls us to choose the same humility. Listen to what he writes. Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if you love Jesus at all, if you're paying any attention to him, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Listen to this. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. If you have your own Bible, circle that word humility. That's a key word. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus Christ. In other words, here's the humility Jesus lived. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, There's this word again. He humbled himself. Circle it in your Bibles. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. There's your humility. From the glories of heaven to the horror of a cross. And what happened because Jesus humbled himself? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's the story of Jesus Christ. Christ. Jesus wore the glory of humility and that's the story we read in Matthew. And that is the truth that we are celebrating this morning here at this table. Right? Jesus' journey that started so humbly in Bethlehem. That started so humbly in Nazareth. It did ultimately bring him to Judah. It did bring him down to Jerusalem. We're going to get there. His story will bring him to Jerusalem, to to the capital city, to to the place of all authority and power. 
and there in Jerusalem he will be declared king of the Jews. Only that declaration won't take place on the steps of a palace. That declaration will not take place in the temple courtyard. King of the Jews will be posted as a poor attempt at gallows humor above his cross as he dies in Jerusalem. We will journey with him all the way to Jerusalem where he will experience the greatest humiliation of all so that he can experience the greatest glory of all. So we celebrate at this table. And the only way that you and I can come to this table is to share that same humility. To be humble enough to realize how much we need the gift of grace that our Father offers here to us. It is only in true humility when you and I recognize how sinful we really are, how unworthy we truly are, how desperately we need him, that we'll understand what this table's all about. So let me invite you this morning. If that's you, if you truly are sorry for your sins, if you really want to follow Jesus, Meaning, you'll follow his footsteps of humility, right? Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. If you truly are willing to humble yourself with him, then you are invited this morning to come with gladness to the table of the Lord. So come to this table, you who have much faith, and you who would like to have more. You who have been to the sacrament often and you who have not been here for a long time. All of you who have tried to follow Jesus in his humble footsteps and all of you who have failed. Come. Because it's Christ who invites you to humbly meet him here. Would you pray with me please? Lord God, you draw and welcome us, emptied of pride and hungry for grace, to this your kingdom feast. Nowhere can we find the food for which our souls cry out but here. Lord, at your table, invigorate and nourish us, that in and through this bread and wine, your love may meet us, your life complete us in the power and glory of your kingdom. And we recognize, Father, how unworthy we are to come. We only come to this table humbled by the knowledge of our own brokenness. We see the brokenness lived out in the world around us. We see the brokenness of war as people die daily. We see the brokenness of ethnic cleansing. We see the brokenness of refugees driven from their homes. 
We see the brokenness of hatred being spit by white supremacists. We see the brokenness of 17 people dead in a school shooting. And we confess that that same brokenness is inside of each of us. We hate. We judge. We create division. We steal. In our anger, we murder. We are broken. And that's exactly why we come to this table, Father. Not because we're so worthy, but because we're so unworthy. We are in need of your grace. We are in need of your transformation. And so with humble hearts, we come. Thanking you, Jesus, our humble Savior. Amen.